0: Hello and welcome to yet another insightful episode of The Digital Adoption Show, the podcast that explores the ever-evolving landscape of work and technology. Today, we have a rather interesting episode for you. As the season of the show is nearing its end, we thought it would be extremely helpful for our listeners if we can get two renowned thought leaders in the L&D space to come and talk about boosting employee performance and hacks for creating a future-proof learning environment so that all of you get some wonderful ideas regarding how to start 2024 in the corporate world. My first guest today is going to speak about the movements from the learning paradigm to a performance paradigm and the challenges and opportunities that organizations now face globally. We have had the pleasure of having with us Charles Jennings. Charles is recognized as one of the world's leading experts on building and implementing learning and organizational performance strategies. Charles has led learning and performance improvement projects for multinational corporations, government agencies, for nonprofits and other organizations for more than 40 years now. He has been the chief learning officer at Thomson Reuters, developing and implementing learning and performance strategies for more than 50,000 employees globally. Charles has also been a keynote speaker and an invited speaker at many international events, including the Gulf Economic Forum conferences attended by the head of state, presidents, and prime ministers. In context to our conversation today, Charles has worked on the 70 20 model for more than 20 years by now. The performance-centric approach is based on observation research that suggests high-performing organizations and individuals Develop most of their capabilities through learning within the workflow. In other terms, learning from working rather than learning to work. When asked to share his thoughts on the concept of learning while doing the approach and also the difference between learning and training to clear the confusion that a lot of folks have, he had some interesting analogies to share. I think
1: in the, in the book that my colleagues and I wrote called 70 Twenty Ten towards hundred percent performance. We talked about something we call the training bubble. And to be honest, many L&D departments and learning professionals still, they're still in the training bubble. They've separated learn from work it, but they've also separated learning from performance. And that's created a major challenge. And I think this, this difference between, or this idea that, that training and learning are the same things and that training and learning and performance are the same things. Is, is really misconceived. In fact, Jay Cross, who is a very good friend of mine and former colleague, and one thing Jay often said before he died in 19, in 2015, was that he used to say, Charles, many people can't separate learning from schooling. And I think that's essentially the problem because training is really schooling. And uh, it's where, we're, where learning and working are, are separated. And yep. and training and learning, training and learning sometimes touch, uh, but but certainly they're not by the main thing. And the research tells us, on the other hand, that the vast majority of learning that occurs actually occurs as part of or as a, as a result of working. You know, yep. we learn by doing, and and we really need to need to take that into account. The fact that we you know we learn essentially by by doing, and and actually. If we look outside of our world, we look to, for example, the economists, the economic view of the world, the macroeconomists. The economists have been telling us for years that the vast amount of work that we, sorry, the the, the, the learning comes from doing. In fact, uh, I often point out that Kenneth Arrow, now uh, Kenneth Arrow was probably one of the USA's greatest economists ever. He won his Nobel Prize right back in in 1972, Arrow Arrow said, learning is a product of experience, and learning can only take place through the attempt to solve a problem, and therefore only takes place during activity. And other economists have said the same thing. So the challenge that we have is to think about learning in terms of helping us solve problems, because we we learn from doing, we learn from solve problems. And I've asked, I've asked maybe 100,000 people over the last 20 years this single question. I've asked them, think about the greatest learning experience you've ever had in your life. It might have been when you were a child and you were learning to ride a bicycle, or it might have been you know, when you were a, a, a student, when you were studying, or it might have been when you were working in a team on a difficult project or a project that went well or didn't go well, or it might have been yesterday. Where did that learning occur? And Shubham, the answers to that, I can almost guarantee that most people will say that that really great learning experience came whilst they were trying to complete your task. It wasn't in some formal learning environment. Of course, now formal learning does give us great, formal training does give us great learning, you know, great learning insights. But actually the the learning that really matters happens as part of work. And I think that's, that's the challenge that we've, you know, we've got to accept and we have to have to face.
0: He then talks about his new 70 20 model and how he envisions LND teams addressing business challenges in the NPR direct business Enabler.
1: Well, I think that we have to start to think about things differently because, you know, learning has always been, it's, it's, it's not new that learning occurs as part of working. Uh, that's, you know, that's as old as humanity uh yep. but the the challenge that we've got is is thinking about how we how we adapt and change uh about um, and adopt new practices and for me, I think that the teams that use this sort of new age learning approaches yep. they tend to work they tend to work outside in and what I mean by that is they focus on organization or project results that they're aiming at that's the first thing they focus on so you don't focus on on what learning needs to happen. You focus on what work needs to get done. You focus on what outcomes you're looking at. They focus on executing, you know, which critical tasks need to be carried out well. And you're always looking at opportunities for improvement, which is why I tend to like to use the term creating a culture of continuous improvement rather than creating a culture of learning. Often when people talk about creating a culture of learning, they're really talking about creating a culture of formal learning. They're not looking beyond that, what I would call that 10, that structured learning, which which is necessary and can be very powerful, but it's only a small bit of the, of the whole pie. Yeah. Because because we've got to remember that, that most learning comes from working rather than the other way around. Uh, but, you know, if we want to go beyond basic competence, which is, which is what formal learning helps us to do. I've never met anyone who's completely ended a formal learning program and felt that they were an expert. Uh, yeah. I've, I've met lots of people who've undertaken a good formal learning program and felt that they need to have enough in order to start to apply things. Often they yeah. run into problems when they do start to apply things, but I've never met someone who said, I'm an expert because I've been on a, on a course. It just doesn 't happen, we all know that. I mean we know that naturally. You become an expert through experience, practice, conversations, networks, and reflection, and it takes time. you know you don't become an expert overnight again, I know of of no expert uh, over uh, you know anyone can become an expert overnight and so I think that those are the key things we need to think about in terms of this this whole new uh, new approach, and uh, just at the time we're speaking. Uh, uh, today, Shubham, there's just uh, there's something that I'm sure you and I are both interested in. There was a cricket test match that finished a couple of days ago here in England. Okay, now, I'm an Australian originally, so I support what they call Abe, you know, anyone but England. But uh, so, of course, I was, I was supporting me uh, supporting the Indian team who had a, a wonderful victory. And I think that when you look at, at elite sports people, no matter what they are, I'm just thinking about the, the great performances that we saw in the, in the most recent cricket test match. You know, Joe Root had a, it was a, had a wonderful innings in terms of batting innings. There were some great, uh, some great uh, uh, performances by uh, the Indian bowlers and also the Indi- Indian bowlers doing something that they're not supposed to be good at, which is batting. Okay. Uh, now, when you look at these people who are really experts and think about how do they develop their expertise, And the answer is they developed it through a lot of practice, through working with people who are really good, exemplary performers that they can work with and learn. You know the techniques and the approaches that whereby they can achieve good results. So I think if we step out of our our learning suit, our learning clothes, and think about sporting uh, sports, elite sports people, for example, we we immediately see the importance of learning by doing. You know, no one achieves a gold medal at the Olympics without yeah. lots and lots of practice, without studying uh, what they do and how they do it and reflecting and things like that. That's, what re- that's the learning that really matters.
0: Now we know how the scenarios are changing. Now, so many technologies are coming into organizations and how companies are maturing towards new solutions and new technologies. These are new environments for people, you know, in respective industries and organizations. And following up on what Charles said, we are using these new scenarios with the aim of reaching a higher goal. But are we missing the bus on enabling people? He then shed some light on the issues and tells us how we can start enabling people by leveraging these technologies.
1: I think that we, we've developed our formal learning approaches really well. I mean, there are some excellent instructional design, design methodologies and, and approaches in terms of the building individual skills and knowledge and skills. Yeah. But yeah. if we're going to have real impact, if we're going to have real business impact, there's a piece there that's missing, which is really around making that connection between the fact that individual knowledge and skills is just one part of the whole ecosystem, yeah. uh, the, whole, the whole system that delivers high performance for our organizations. And again, you know, we've known for years that if we simply train people up in terms of competencies and expect, expect the work to be done to a very high standard and expect business results, we're going to be missing things. We have to think about the whole, we have to take a systemic view and look at the whole, the whole approach. And if I can give you an example about how L&D can address these business challenges... Yeah. To really add business value, uh, we work with a company called Hilti. Now, many yeah. people will know the know the company Hilti. It's a global construction company. And they approached us, uh, the seventy twenty ten Institute, a few years ago, and uh, it's the challenge was that they had. The challenge wasn't a learning challenge. The challenge was a business challenge, and one of their business challenges they had was around about a third of their newly hired sales managers were either leaving or being promoted within 12 months of, of being recruited. So the company was growing rapidly, but also there was lots of pressures on, on sales managers. And as we all know, you know, sales managers need to, need to deliver tangible business results or else they don't get their bonuses and the company's not happy. So you have, you have, you know, two sides, two unhappy sides to the, the quest, so. What Hilti found was that it was very expensive to hire new staff and that this turnover, uh, high level of turnover, was really damaging the company. So so we worked with the uh, Hilti and DT to help them expand their thinking from their learning paradigm into the performance paradigm. Uh, and we worked with some of their regional sales managers. And they, when they analyzed their onboarding processes, they found that the, the programs were too long and import, the important fact was that the programs didn't address the critical tasks that sales managers need to undertake. So there was a lack, there was that gap between, it was what, what we call the knowing doing gap, gap, gap between yeah. training people in terms of making sure they know what to do yeah. and actually making sure that they do it. because. It was based around competencies and things like that. It wasn't based around critical tasks. You know, the work that needs to get done and in the work that needs to get done, what are the critical things people need to do? So what we did with them is uh, uh, work with them to redesign their onboarding so that it didn't focus simply on, on critical tasks and it moved out of just the 10. So it moved into how do we support them? In the workplace? How do we provide them with performance support and the right tools and things like that? And interestingly, Hilti had one measure the business was really interested in. They weren't interested in learning measures. The one measure they were interested in was what they called time to productivity or time to payback. Yes. In other words, how long did it take a newly hired sales manager to start to earn money for the company rather than simply pay the cost of? recruiting, training, getting them into post and so on. And when they first looked at this, the time to pay back was somewhere between a year and, and 18 months. In some cases, it was even two years. So that makes it pretty obvious why there was, one of the reasons there was turnover, because if you're a salesperson and maybe you have a bonus, uh, if you're not starting to deliver value for the company, you're unlikely to get your bonus yeah. and you know, you're going to be unhappy. The company's going to be unhappy and you're more likely to leave. Yeah. So, so basically, what we did was, or uh, what what the Healthy, uh team did, with our guidance and our support, uh, and they used our our uh, performance-based learning program in order to, to do this. Basically, what they did was they uh, they redesigned their their onboarding program and measured the time to productivity, the impact. The output of that was that. That time to productivity and payback came down from around 18 months to somewhere between three and six months, and so yeah. that was, uh, and particularly in their in their groups in in they in Southeast Asia particularly, it was really clear that the the business impact was absolutely immediate and profound. So they could, and they could measure it. So they they could measure the fact that if someone was if someone was onboarded, that they could start to produce value for the company within three months rather than 18 months. It's a clear business case, you know, a high value business case. And I think I give you that example because that requires a different way of thinking. It's not thinking about learning. It's thinking about what is the business impact that we need to help with and what are the solutions that we can develop to do that. And and the key for this was very much around the, the area that what that work works in, which is performance support. In other words, how can we p- help people do their jobs whilst they're doing their jobs? So, and that's the key. It's, it's about preparing them to do their jobs, but mainly yeah. about helping them do their jobs while they're doing jobs. How can we make sure that the errors are reduced, that the performance is improved, that the outputs are delivered, that speed to, speed to delivery is increased, and all those sorts of factors? So, so that I think is the major rethink that's required. So it's a, it's a change in mindset, but also a change in practices and, and the methodology that we've developed over a number of years now really sort of is focused around that. It's focused around what we call moving from the, the learning paradigm to the performance paradigm, moving from being an order taker to being a performance enabler or a value creator. So moving your, your whole business model.
0: Charles then sheds light on the best way to transform learning methods to performance metrics and that focus on inputs to outputs of a business.
1: Yes, again, that's a really good question because I think people have been struggling with this for years. And the challenge is it's almost impossible, certainly in my experience and experience of my colleagues, it's almost impossible to demonstrate business value by using learning metrics. You have to rethink. Uh, your approach. And there's been, I mean, people like Jack Phillips with these ROI methodology and so on, it, you know, it, it, that can work in a small number of cases, but it's quite often really difficult. The The answer in terms of your your metrics yep. is if you, t- it requires, again, it requires changing mindset. It requires you to think from the business perspective. And so think of what are the important, what are the things that are important to the senior leaders, the, the senior business leaders. What, what is it that keeps them up at night? know, I mean, What keeps them awake at night? It's not the fact that their learning solutions aren't, aren't being delivered correctly or that people aren't, aren't learning enough. It's things like the fact that our customer satisfaction levels are not high or could be higher, or the fact that our, our uh, uh, first-time resolution of problems is, is not a high enough percentage level. Those sorts of things, those sort of business challenges might be or that our sales pipeline isn't strong enough or, or our, our delivery, our execution isn't fast enough or it could be a whole range of things. I think we need to start to think about those. And when we think about those, then the metrics that we use automatically come from those. So, you know, if, if you find that your CSAT levels, your customer satisfaction levels uh, aren't high enough and you feel that part of the problem is a capability problem, and so therefore there is some sort of solution that learning and development needs to, to be involved in, we're not looking to make sure that people know you know, all about their products and services so that they can answer the questions. That's, that's part of the thing. That's a learning metric. You know, If we say, well, we want to make sure that people know about our products or people can uh, you know, do whatever, uh, but the key is, are, are, the, are, they, are those people carrying out their tasks so that the first level resolution increases, so that the customer satisfaction levels increase? So we need to tie ourselves to those business metrics. Uh, and there's any number of approaches we can take. and uh, We may want to use learning metrics internally just to help us review our own approaches and so on. But not don't try and use learning metrics as the end point because you'll never convince. Again, I've sat in many, many meetings where senior learning people have presented a whole series of learning metrics, such as learning activity. We had, you know, we've taken everyone through this program. Everyone has completed this to this level. To be honest, business people don't care about that too much. Uh, yeah. What they care about is, you know, how is that helping me with my my business, my team. My part of the business. How is that helping us deliver our objectives in terms of what we need to deliver? And I think just as a as a final point there, I think it's it's always important to ask the question why. So you know if we're doing something, why are we doing it? And and if you continually ask the question why, it helps you get to the end point because you know why are we doing this? Why are we designing this program? Why are we uh, why are we doing whatever we're doing because if you keep asking that question the answer you will finally get to will be a business outcome so it is for some one or more business outcomes and it might be as part of that process it might be that we're helping people develop their own capability and develop their own careers and things like that so and that that's important I shouldn't I shouldn't step away from that I think helping people develop so that they have career progression and they can have a fulfilled and successful career is important. But if, if learning and development only focuses on individuals and only focuses on career development associated from the business, and they will be a sideshow to a certain extent. I mean, everyone naturally, every organization wants to provide a great learning opportunity for their employees and great opportunities to development, of course. Yeah. But actually, but actually the key, the key role of L and D is to have business impact and to, to make sure that the, our businesses can survive, our businesses can thrive. Because if we don't do that, we can spend our lives helping people develop their careers, but their careers are not going to be in, that, in our organization. They're going to be somewhere else.
0: My next guest on today's podcast is Claire Brody. She's an industry veteran in the l space and has worked for global companies at various leadership roles. And she also runs her own startups. She's a thought leader in the field of learning, who will be discussing a few must follow hacks to build a future proof learning workspace with us today. She starts by introducing herself.
2: I'm Claire. I work with people who want to change work. Uh, I've set up a consultancy called Work in Motion. Um, So I do that by working with individuals one-to-one as a thought partner. I run peer-based inquiries into the future of work and the future of learning and development. And um, I help companies to develop and execute um, their strategies for new ways of working. So that's me and I'm, I'm here for the chats. Delighted to be here she has
0: an immense experience of 20 plus years in the field of law so we began by asking her about the common problems between the various sectors that she has worked in when it comes to training the employees earning higher education and different consultants.
2: yeah i mean I, and i speak to people from lots of different um you know industries as well and it, to me i think the there is a common problem that regardless of what sector you work in if you work in learning and development and that's the belief that training is the solution to whatever problem presents itself so you know often lng is in a silo it's like we're the training people come to us for training we deliver training that's what we do and you know some of it is structural because it's it's siloed a little bit and some of it is just a need to reframe and recalibrate the role because i think most organizational challenges cannot be solved by training alone. You know, there, it might be that there's a, a new technology needed or the process is flawed or, you know, it could be that leaders aren't role modeling the behavior, but you're trying to, you know, get everybody to role model to 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 behave in a certain way. So in those situations, training can actually be, become part of the problem. And it's when training can, can get a, you know, when when you can get negative feedback that it's not working, but it was never going to succeed because it wasn't looking you know, at the problem in, in in its wholeness. So I think LNG leaders today need to expand their thinking and really check that they're perceiving the problem and understand their role either as one piece of the puzzle, um, and or else to to step up and bring other problem solvers into into the team and and establish a cross functional team to to really move the needle. So. You know, it's, it's ultimately about how can we create the conditions for this company to thrive. And yes, training is, is part of the solution, but so is mindset and culture and systems and structures. Uh, and once all those elements are working well together, you have a chance to make a big difference. As we are aware that post-COVID, technology
0: has become the backbone of any L&D function. Claire's insights into how leaders can use technology more effectively by keeping the human element in mind are
2: invaluable. Yeah, I mean it's it's funny because I think technology can make experiences more human than being physically in the same room together. Like, okay, when I started my career twenty years ago, uh, there was a, a very strong uh, you know gap between being alone working through content on an LMS and today, where you know. There, there can be really transformational learning experiences, you know, when you're using like things like Slack and Miro and Zoom, and you've got multiple touch points, it can be very powerful. And it's not that I don't think there's you know, I don't I have nothing against in person experiences. I think that, that we crave that connection. But a well-designed uh, tech tech enabled learning can be really human and it, it can create a continuity outside the, the classroom to build a more sustainable relationship across peers and it can be much more inclusive if, if so I'm participating in a course at the moment that's being run out of Canada. So I don't have to get on a plane from Dublin for, you know abandon my husband and to, to the three kids pay for a hotel, pay for flights. I can participate in that course from here. Uh, And also for introverts, you know, they can manage their energy levels better than being like overwhelmed by just the experience of being around lots of people. So there's benefits that, you know, technology Brings to LNG that that you know that you just can't have in the classroom and and not to not to denigrate classroom experiences. I love them too, but I think there's huge opportunity now. What I will say is there's a caveat, which mm-hmm. is that you know to to get to that very high standard, you you need really good learning design and you need really good facilitation. To create those experiences Um, and that creates a tension almost between scalability and the the number of touch points or how human how how much you know facilitate or moderated the program is and and then on the other end of the spectrum sadly there's plenty of just content you know festering away on learning management systems that that would make you feel very isolated um, using e-learning and you know or, or the tools aren't being fully utilized but You know, this great opportunity. I think it's never been more exciting, really, for LNG to to start using technology. Um, I mean, start, we're past starting, but to really exploit what's available.
0: Following up on what she shared with us, we were keen to know what success is achieved at the beginning of the launch of these new programs, like e-learning systems and all. Or are there any friction points that she sees when people approach it?
2: yeah I, I yeah i can i can actually two examples come to mind um I'll, I'll stick with Corville for the moment because that was one where when we shifted to uh the new format we wanted to offer some customers instructor led online so what everybody wound up doing with zoom during covid but this was before it and our our instructors who were engineers effectively they they really didn't like they loved being in the room with people they found the whole uh format of you know, online facilitation really challenging, and I would say that is an art form. So, actually, when I started in Twitter, then we all got certified in online facilitation from LPI. You can't just pick up a Zoom and think that you can teach in the same way as you would have done in the classroom. It's it's very different. So. I think just respect, that that's a new skill set, and um, I think the world has come so far since dur- during COVID. But still, I don't know if many, if everyone, has taken the time to really invest in developing their facilitation skills, you, you know, yes. in the uh, in the virtual world. And the other example I give you about digital adoption would be at Twitter. I led out global organizational effectiveness, so or it was an in an initiative called. How we work. And one of the uh, perceived problems was at Slack, we had introduced Slack, but there wasn't full uptake of it. So, what happened was half the company was using GChat and half the company was using Slack. And Mm -hmm. people came to me saying, We need a training. (laughs) I was like, Do we need a training? And that's true, but it's not the full truth. You know, it's partial. So, what else do we need? So, this goes back to that bigger picture thing. So, I partnered with IT and we learned that actually different functions had different levels of adoption. And when we shared that data with the leadership, they all kind of got a bit kind of, oh, oh, actually, my function isn't using it. And I haven't been using it. And it was all about role modeling. Once the leaders started to use it with their organizations, the people got on. But like they didn't actually need training wasn't an obstacle to adoption. It was once people were in, then it enabled them. You know, we did provide we did develop resources with IT that. Helps people make the most out of it, or you know, minimise the disruption, or you know, establish etiquette around using Slack. But it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the barrier to entry that everybody thought it was. So I think, um, yeah, maybe that that in, that shares some insight with you about um, how people feel about taking on new technology.
0: She then sheds light on the three things to be kept in mind to create a change when
2: building an L&D strategy. So the first one, and like this could just be all three, <laughs> but the first one is about understanding the business and what its purpose is. Like they're coming along with a you know, a standard playbook of, you know, offerings from, from what, you know, the I suppose the standard L and D offering of onboarding and manager training and whatever that is, you know, you you really need to understand what's important to your business and what's important to your business over the coming years. Like if your business is going to double in size over the next 18 months, you will probably benefit from putting in place some diverse hiring and interviewing skills. If your business wants to break into new markets, how can you help them do that? And, you know, sometimes it's... It, it's a scary conversation to have when you you really don't know the answer like so a lot of people want to go into conversations knowing that they have the answer and that they can you know um deliver for 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 that person but you know it's very powerful even just to have that conversation with the business you get them much more bought into what you're trying to do and if you listen to what they're telling you you'll understand how you can really make an impact that's number one and understand the business so number two I think you have to get ruthless about what you focus on and my experience over many years has been that you you can quickly become an order taker you can you 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 can come under pressure from various parts of the business to do things for them and if you don't have a framework for taking things on and rejecting things you, you know the list starts to mount you just don't have the resources or the capacity to take the to take all on you spread yourself too thin and you get nowhere so really choosing only two or three things uh, that will impact on the business and that you can invest all of your people into working on it and all of your resources um that will be a much uh, a much better way to move um and finally then the third thing kind of related to what i was saying earlier just to zoom out and expand your thinking you know, and appreciate that very few things can be addressed by learning alone. Um, looking at the mindset, the behaviors, the culture and the systems, and really seeing asking yourself, what's incentivizing people to behave or to to act in the way that we're trying to to, to address and what's um what's getting in their way. So you I think we need to reframe L and D as a performance consultant, you know, so there doesn't always mean that there's going to be training in the solution.
0: One of the very common questions organizations usually have is how you calculate the ROI of a great workspace. And who better to answer it? Her thoughts generally reflect her experience.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's it's always hard to measure everything, like some things you cannot measure. And and for that reason, I feel LNG sometimes falls back on completion rates or that type of data. But you know, there's there's lots of other information around the workplace that will give you an idea if you've got a great workplace or not. You know, you can look at um, hiring data. You know, what's the rate of acceptance when offers are made? Does that tell you that you have a good reputation or, you know, that the candidates have had a, had a good process, a good experience? You can look at attrition data. And um, actually, an interesting thing a colleague of mine at Twitter did was look at the average tenure of employees that took a career development course and the average tenure of the same kind of equivalent cohort that didn't. And and it, those that took the course stayed seven months longer in their in, in at oh. Twitter than those who didn't. Now it's hard to know whether. But the cause, you know, if there is a causal relationship there, but it's definitely an interesting correlation. And I think it's really interesting to look at trends in certain role categories, like do mid-level salespeople leave typically after 18 months? What's happening there? What's happening at 12 months or 14 months when they might start to look around? Is it a lack of progression? Is it compensation and incentives? Like what's happening in the system and what's happening, you know, in terms of, um, I don't know, any intelligence that you can gain when you start to see trends in data around attrition is is very interesting, even if your company doesn't do leaving interviews, which, of course, are another uh, rich source of data. And then employee sentiment surveys. You know, there's there's loads you can do with these. You can dig into how people are feeling about how easy it is to work. You know, you'll hear there's too many meetings or decision making is too slow. Or, you know, another good one is looking at managers. You know, how, how do we what are the expectations of our managers? And what is our employee sentiment survey telling us about those expectations? So learning and development can get lots of clues in, from those employee sentiment surveys as to, you know, whether they are contributing to a healthy and effective workforce. Thank you all for listening.
0: Stay tuned as we bring you fresh perspectives every week on the Digital Adoption Show. We are thrilled to announce that our podcast is now live on multiple platforms, including YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and much more. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes filled with insightful conversation. We greatly appreciate your support and encourage you to leave a review, comment, or a rating to help us continue delivering valuable content. If you have any questions on the topic, feel free to ask in the comment section below and we will get back to you. Thank you we mm-hmm.